Uh, we're in a series right now called Jesus Don't Care. So far, I think everybody understands that uh, it's, it's supposed to be funny. Um, took me a minute to get, <laughs> people were really frustrated, but I think, I think now they understand that there is some stuff Jesus doesn't care about. He's pretty clear in Scripture. And the important part about knowing about those things is that then you can look at your own life and evaluate all the different things in your life that, that maybe you care about that Jesus isn't all that concerned over. Um, today we're going to talk about this idea that, that Jesus is a nice person. Um, this is a big Christian movement. I think as the world continues to sort of spiral in its own direction, people love to counter the world's movement but with don't you know how nice my Jesus is. Uh, we oftentimes counter our Jesus against other well-known nice figures in the world like Gandhi. Look how nice Gandhi's face is. It's such a nice face. Right? Or Mother Teresa. It's an incredibly nice face. I don't know if it gets a lot nicer than that. There's so many wonderful faces that we like to think of when we think of nice, and oftentimes when we, especially in the Western church, think about Jesus and want to promote him as nice, we show this face. It's this really awkward, usually portrait hung in the bathroom of all of our homes, <laughs> at least the ones growing up like I had, of this very, very white Jesus with this kind of stoic uh, face and expression. And then, you know, we, we, we modernize them a little bit. We have images like this one, where Jesus is with kids and usually sheep. He's just out there walking around with packs of kids and herds of sheep. <laughs> like, I don't know where he finds those groups, but he's just like, hey, everybody come sit down and have, let's have a lunch, a picnic, and bring your sheep over. And then, there, and then we're, there's, there's, there's stuff like this that we put on our mantles. There's Jesus again with kids and sheep. And then, of course, we have this Jesus. Some of you right now probably have this picture in your house. This is actually a really popular picture of Jesus lately. Again, um, <laughs> just incredibly awkward. And then probably the most well-known or one of the most well-known pictures of Jesus is this one. Oh, wait, that's Obi-Wan. <laughs> but close enough. Just want to be honest, based on his ethnicity, based on what part of the world he was from and the time, Jesus actually probably looked a lot more like this. Or this. Or this. Not a lot of porcelain figures with that particular skin tone these days. It's an interesting thing to, to ask ourselves when we think about the Jesus we've built in our minds. Does he even look like he did look? And, and how much does it really matter? I'm not sure it matters a ton, but it's important. We also blend those faces of Jesus in with this idea, as I said, that he was super nice. I think a lot of us, when we think of Jesus as nice, mean he was super uh, mediocre in his offensiveness, at least personality-wise. He was almost sheepish. He was lammy. He was soft and pliable, always acquiescing to the desires of those around him because he was a really nice guy. We say things like, Jesus that we know is all about love, and all he wants to do is meet people where they're at so he can listen and not judge. And to an extent, this is very, very true. But it is, unfortunately, or fortunately, only to an extent. 
What if I put up this phrase for all of us, that Jesus Christ was not always a nice person? I have in my notes the word gasp. <laughs> so you have permission if you need to. I, I expected it. Like, <gasps> but we're, we're getting pretty good as a crowd, aren't we? At, uh, at, yeah, uh, this is, uh, you know, I need to start preaching at other places because I throw punches at you guys and you are way more prepared than you should be. You're like, I'm offended, but I know I shouldn't be. <laughs> I've been offended before and then he gets me in the end, so I refuse to be emotional about this. I don't like him, but I love coming here. It's just a conundrum. It's just a conundrum, I know. So be offended, be offended. Jesus Christ, I put it up there, was not always a nice person. Your first argument should be, whoa, whoa, Danny, don't you know anything about the Bible and about the things that, that we talk about God? God is love, 1 Corinthians 13. I think that's a fantastic argument. Let's go ahead and uh, read the love portion of it together. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there, 1 Corinthians 13. We'll start in uh, verse 4. Descriptions of love. We know God is love, therefore we know Jesus who is God is love. Therefore Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist in his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. For through him, love endures forever. For love never ends. It's a great passage and a great argument for Jesus being nice. The only problem is, the word nice never appears in this description of Jesus. Jesus wasn't always a nice person. The definition of nice, we'll use the secular one because that's the one that the world often hears from us, is this. Nice means to be pleasant, agreeable, or satisfactory. Like a, like a fine cheesecake you get at the Cheesecake Factory. It's pleasant. How's your cheesecake? It's nice. This is often how we receive and how we share our Jesus. Niceness is often focused, usually, based on the definition and description, if you spend any time around the word, it's usually focused on outward consequences and a desire to not ruffle feathers and so minimize conflict. Now, spending any time with Jesus like we have, which is the whole point of this series, does that sound like him? Does he avoid conflict? Does he care about the outward appearance? Is he really nice? Very often. Most of us know the obvious story, the one you're probably preparing yourselves for, of Jesus and the money changers in the temple. <laughs> you don't know that I'm preaching about that. But let's talk about it for a minute. Look at this image right here. I like this image because the artist had to paint it because they were painting things in scripture, but the whip in Jesus' hand, it's just a hard thing to conceive, so it looks instead like a piece of string or a yarn. It's actually so hard to see, it looks like Jesus is about to punch a fool. <laughs> That's what it looks like. He's not. Instead, he's going to whip them with this piece of yarn. <laughs> because that's how we see Jesus. He's like, I'm about to pull out my yarn and whip you all. But if you look closer at the image, you'll see that although the whip is a little smaller than probably it should be, in reality, those around them are being impacted in a powerful way. Look at these small children in the corner. I don't know why that man looks like he's 70, but that's supposed to be a child. 
And what's amazing about it is you see one child sort of looking with Jesus, sort of protecting the dove that their parents were selling in the temple. And then you see the other child, it's kind of hard to see behind the calf there, being covered by his mother in her robes because she's so afraid of this man going around whipping people. This is a powerful passage, but I think the thing that really makes it so profound is that it wasn't that he walked by, he saw some people in the temple, he walked in, and then he just raged. It's that he walked by, saw the people in the temple, and then decided, now somebody's getting a whipping. And then walked out of the temple, went and either bought the material or found the material, and then made a whip. What kind of discussion is happening during this whip-making time with his disciples? Jesus, what are you doing? I'm about to whip some people. Jesus, you're, whoa, you're the Messiah. Like, you are gentle in love. Yes, I am. And you are soft-hearted. Yes, I am. And you are like, you're so nice. And Jesus is like, I, I'm sorry, but that's nowhere in Scripture. Hold the end of this so we can make it tight so it hurts real good. <laughs> you don't think about it. It takes two people to make a whip, right? Or at least the, he had to, he had to, this is a process. This is him being truly thoughtful about he's going to go in and bring this level of discipline to a large group of people. And then he walks in, and I imagine it that he walks in like Indiana Jones. He's got the whip under his outer robe. Everybody says, oh, the Messiah's here. Hopefully he buys something from me. And the disciples are in the back like, this is not good. This is not good. Jesus looks around. He waits for some underscore music off in the distance. <laughs> some very Western-like. Then he opens his robe and his whip falls to the ground. And then it's on. <laughs> table to table. Jesus Christ. Imagine it. Whipping people. And whipping them and then yelling, get your stuff out of my house. We've all been in this place. We've all experienced the, the, the wrath of a truly frustrated, righteous mother or father, and they look at you with those whipping eyes, right, that you know, like, I gotta go. This is our Jesus. And yet we make his whip smaller, we make his expression nicer, and yet scripture doesn't give any excuses for it at all. It says he was fully doing what he was supposed to do, which was bringing discipline to people that needed it. This is hard. It doesn't fit in our understanding of Jesus. It, it doesn't fit in our understanding to see him make this scene, to move in this prophetic, passionate way. And yet he does it over and over and over. This passage, though, is too easy. It's too much what people expect when they think of, yeah, yeah, Jesus wasn't always... Yeah, yeah, Jesus had a side to him. So instead, we're going to look at another one. I want to read to you what I would say is maybe one of the rudest passages in the Bible. We're going to read the version in Luke, Luke chapter 11. It's when Jesus pronounces six woes on the religious and political leaders of his day. Jesus is doing his usual traveling, and he's going from town to town, and culturally speaking, we've talked about this, he would get invited to sit with whatever rabbi lived in the town that he was entering into to share and to preach and to build his ministry. In this particular town, Jesus gets invited to spend time with not only the rabbis, 
but also the religious lawyers, the, the experts in Scripture. And they're there to host Jesus, but they're also very much so there to test him. Jesus, in this place, decides to emotionally, if you will, and spiritually, if you will, whip them. And he does it all in a conversation over a dinner table. And that today is where I'm going to invite you to pull up a chair and sit. We've done this already at a different dinner table. This one is not the same, nor are these levels of uh, discipline anywhere near as gentle as the ones before. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 37. Jesus is teaching. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. This would involve Jesus, the group that invited him, and obviously Jesus' entire group that was with him as well. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. He did not follow the cultural standard, the accepted norm. And so Jesus, sensing the internal frustration and angst of this religious leader who decided that the way Jesus approached the table was too dirty for him, decided that now was the time to run him through. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. This is a fun dinner party. Like, like I always want to be one of Jesus' disciples in these conversations where, like, I'm excited, I've been on the road, I'm tired, this is amazing food. Finally, we're meeting with some powerful people that can help our movement. We don't have to sleep under trees anymore. These guys know people who know people, which is important for the church. And then Jesus goes and opens his mouth. Jesus goes and is like, hey, look, uh, we're just going to go ahead and have this out pull out my emotional whip, and I'm going to smack all of you right in the face. He says, you wash the outside, but you don't wash the inside. So I came here to show you what it really means to be in relationship. And then he says the word, verse 40, you fools, exclamation point. Did you not, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms, those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, verse 42, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. At this time, these Pharisees, they would have uh, been the men who collected the tithes. And tithes weren't just money. So for those of you who don't know, uh, the, the church, and always has, has run off this idea that everybody gives a little of their first fruits together, and then we accomplish this thing's for all of us and for those who are not yet part of the church with those funds, with those treasures, with those times, whether it's volunteering in children's or giving uh, our own money or giving our skill set. We tithe those things, okay? We give those things to the church, and then the church manages those things for the greater community. That's how it's supposed to work. These particular Pharisees at this time were very much so concerned about what portion of the tithe they received as leaders of the church. And some of those things they received were herbs, and some of those things they received were uh, the other parts of the offering that they were given. And so this meant and this rue and the herbs were given. And then what would happen is they would sit over a scale and they would divide them up equally amongst themselves. And so Jesus basically says to them, you neglect everyone else around you but you. 
It's this absurd picture of these socially powerful men gathered around this scale, removing a precise portion of these costly garden herbs for themselves. And then Jesus points out publicly that the hearts of those very men care more deeply about the weight of mint than they do about the heart of their neighbor. So Jesus, in a sense, is asking this question. And this question just isn't for them, right? This is where it gets awkward in Scripture because we'll sit at the table, we'll present ourselves there, but then we'll put ourselves on Jesus' side. Just want to be super clear. As a human being, as a child of God, Jesus is the only one fully on Jesus' side. His message is for everybody at the table because at some level in your life and mine, every person in this room is measuring mint and not caring for the heart of their neighbor. Every person in the room. So Jesus is asking this question. Where in your life are you weighing the wrong thing? Let me just put this out there before I move on to the next woe. Where in your life are you weighing the wrong thing? This first woe, by the way, it's the same woe that we talked about last week, but this is how he opens it. It's the woe of treasure. Where in your life are you weighing the wrong thing? This is how you should evaluate that. This is what I'd love for you if this is the one that hits you the hardest. Because remember, Jesus is emotionally whipping people in the room. He's disciplining them, which is not nice. We'll get into what it is in a minute, but it is appropriate. Some of us in this room, these, some of these different woes are going to strike us differently in our hearts. This one could be for you. The woe of treasure. This is how you decide whether you're weighing the wrong thing because it's probably the thing you never weighed before that now has become precious to you. You used to be more sacrificial. You used to be more giving. You used to be more generous. And now all of a sudden you've got a great business. You've got a great job. You've got a great family and you don't volunteer at all to help anybody. This is how you know something has changed in your life. This is how I know when I'm weighing the wrong thing because suddenly my time becomes what I'm all about. Here's another one. It's going to get personal. This is probably just for you guys or whoever's in the room tweaking the sermon. What if the thing you're weighing that you shouldn't be weighing is your woundings? Specifically, love in the room, your church woundings. So you've been hurt by the church. And now you weigh whether or not every church in town is going to hurt you. And you spit it out and you look at it and you evaluate that pastor. Or you evaluate that, that song or you evaluate, oh, I don't know about their bylaws. I don't know. And you weigh, weigh, weigh. Where before you used to be like all about it. Like you were all about the movement because of the way that God through the church has impacted your life. Or God through the church has, has impacted other people's lives. And then all of a sudden you get busy or you get hurt. And that becomes the thing you weigh. And so suddenly this heart for serving, this heart for giving is set on a scale and split up in different directions and suddenly you're someone who sits in the back and doesn't do anything at all. Where in your life are you weighing the wrong thing? It's an uncomfortable situation. The disciples know there's only more to come, but the other guys in the room, they don't yet. So they're getting ramped up. They're thinking, okay, we're... We're educated, we're Pharisees, we're lawyers. We can do this. But Jesus doesn't even give them a second. He moves right into the next woe, and it's the woe of reputation. 11.43 says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. As often happens with those in high positions, the Pharisees twisted the honor due to them as leaders into a hunger for praise. They were eager for people to flatter them and exalt them in religious and social settings. And so they constantly propped themselves up for these 
these perfect scenarios that they would look holy, that they would look righteous. Frankly, the Pharisees were probably the nicest people in town because of how well-crafted their lives were. But Jesus is asking, where in your life are you seeking your own praise and adoration? Where in your life, if you're just honest, if you're just exposed, if you're just emotionally naked and take off all the Instagram stuff and all the social media stuff and all the successful reputation that you've built and you just stand before God as you are, where in your life are you holding, clenching, white-knuckled to something that you just don't want him to have because it is just so well manicured and brings you so much peace? Jesus knows for these gentlemen, it's their reputation, and so he woes them. He proclaims it unjust and hurtful. The next woe, before they can even open their mouth, is the woe of uncleanness. This, for the Pharisees, is the most severe woe that you could say. Luke eleven forty four. 44, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, you have to realize culturally, according to Jewish law, anyone who came into contact with a dead body or a grave was unclean. And since Pharisees were devoted to ceremonial cleanness, okay, they were devoted to reputation, they were really devoted to treasure, this was the ultimate slap right in their face. He ties back the opening line, you wash the outside but not the end, to the bottom. And he says to them, You are ceremonially unfit for the position you've put yourself in. And this was horrifying to them. Jesus is asking them and he's asking us, where in your life are you refusing the help of God and so remaining in your own stained and soiled conditions? Because the thing about the Pharisee's life that's so profoundly juxtaposed at this dinner is that their entire life was supposed to be about God and helping other people find the forgiveness and the release and the restoration. And yet these people's lives were actually trying to insert themselves in the place of God. And therefore they were probably the filthiest emotionally and spiritually touched people at the table. I don't know where in your life you're refusing to ask for help from God. But I know if you're presenting to everybody else that you don't need it, respectfully, and you, you judge me and you feel the Holy Spirit, but if you are refusing the help of Christ and pretending you don't need it, but you and your close loved ones, people around you know you need it in an area, in an area you might be ceremonially unclean. And therefore, you're constantly trying to connect with God, connect with others, and it's just a constant tripping of your life of your lifestyle, of your person, because you have not come before the true God of the universe and been honest about the things that you are wrestling with that he wants to restore, that he wants to renew. But you and I, we have to decide not to put on the robes and pretend that we aren't stained when we so very much are. At this point, the lawyers decide to weigh in. These men are articulate and they are skilled. And they have been watching Jesus dismantle the Pharisees, well, probably for 40, 45 minutes now. So suddenly, they decide to speak up. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus says, Woe to you lawyers also. (laughs) It's so rude. He doesn't do any of the things you're supposed to do in a meeting. Like, okay, what I hear you say is, 
he doesn't do any of the like, oh, let me clarify. I was coming after them. They're just like, you're mean. And he's like, you're next. <laughs> Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. This is the woe of oppression. This is the woe of when you found a little haven in your life and you've decided to not just use that haven to restore you and, and the people you love, but actually use that haven, that knowledge, that skill set, that, that guidance, that ability, that reputation, that treasure, that, all these other things to actually push out and onto other people difficulties in their life. Now this could be an actual physical or legal or ceremonial kind of pushing, or for Christians, this could be the simple pushing of not letting someone go from their past because you know something in their story that you know hurts them. So every time they try to get up on their feet to accomplish something, you as a Christian go, yeah, but remember when? And you just pour just a little bit of oppression into the wound that you know will poison, and you sit back and go, oh, I'm so glad I'm not as messed up as them. It, it's easier to talk about being oppressed than it is to talk about being an oppressor. I would, I would recommend spending time uh, not deciding what you are, but instead just deciding to be with Jesus and ask questions, where in my life am I oppressing people around me? It's a hard, hard thing to spend time in, but it's really, really important. It's easy to see the opposite side of this coin with Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, this is Jesus describing himself again, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Jesus describing himself, along with 1 Corinthians 13. These are beautiful things. Notice, by the way, he never says in here he's nice. In case you're wondering, it's because he's not. Jesus is asking, whose burden are you making heavier and whose are you making lighter? Who are you helping? Who are you serving? Who are you connecting with? Who are you coming alongside? And not waiting, not waiting for people to be, you know, on their face, crawling, trying to find water, but actually seeing people that you're like, you know what? I don't even know if they know that they need this help, but I'm going to go ahead and help them. And I'm going to make sure and not take that credit. I'm going to let them know God just, just laid it on my heart. Because he is the treasure you're supposed to be offering, not your own. Even though the stuff you steward has been given to you by God, the money you steward, the reputation you steward, the, the treasure, the time, it's all been given to you by God. It's been given to me by God. But it's just mine to steward. None of it I can take with me. It's cliche, but true. And my job isn't to hoard it. My job is to hand it out. And to do it in a way that people know it's from Jesus. That's how their burdens become lighter and he gets credit for it. The fifth woe is the hardest woe to uh, decipher. It's very specific to the lawyers. See, these lawyers, they were supposed to be the experts in Scripture, but like many of experts, many experts in Scripture prior to them, their fathers, their forefathers, their fathers before them, uh, they could manipulate it to say whatever they wanted. And so there's this, there's this kind of very, uh, very code, very specific kind of language Jesus uses with these lawyers that he basically says, look, you're still building on the tombs of your forefathers. You are building on the blood that the prophets before you have shed, and you know it, and I know it. He says, all the law and prophets pointed to me. And the lawyers in the room 
They're thinking about all the things that have happened, and they're, of course, agreeing, but too prideful to say anything. They recognize the signpost, but that would mean a lot of power in Jesus' hands, and this Jesus doesn't even wash his hands before he comes to dinner. So you don't want to give dirty hands power. Still a common theme today, isn't it? We want to make sure all the power goes into clean hands, like ours. Jesus condemns them of purposely missing what it says and so building upon what their fathers had also done, rejecting the prophets of God, and that included him. And he's asking, where in your life are you ignoring my teachings and ways? Where in your life are you manipulating Scripture? Where in your life are you not spending time in Scripture? Frankly, you can manipulate Scripture, by the way, by just not reading it. Because then you just ignore what it says, and you're like, I love church. (laughs) I love church. I love connecting with people. I like to learn about God, but you actually don't spend any time. And you usually say something like, well, it's just too complicated. But there are many, many ways and many different opportunities to sit with others, other people who understand the treasure that is this book and the meaning it has for your life and for my life. And so I just want to encourage you not to skip out on Scripture and then make it an excuse that it's too complicated. That, by the way, is what our forefathers and foremothers did. We are not to walk upon those tombs. We are to tear them down and build something new, even if we read it and it's a little confusing and we have to be humble enough to ask questions about what it means. Or, and you'll see this sometimes here at Kesson, sometimes we read stuff and I'm like, I'm not even sure what that means. That's profound though. Let's think on it. Let's wrestle with it. The Bible is so, so inviting in this way. So think about it. Where in your life are you ignoring the teachings and ways of God? The last woe is the woe of knowledge. Luke eleven fifty two. he says, lastly to the lawyers, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. The key of knowledge is a really fun thing. You could do a whole study just on this and maybe we will. The key of knowledge is understanding the nature and will of God. So when you build a relationship with God, you begin to have leadings, you begin to have freedom, you begin to have insight, you begin to kind of have these, this presence, especially as you spend time with Scripture. And as you have this presence, this Holy Spirit presence, you then will just know, I'm supposed to help that person. I'm supposed to teach that person. I'm supposed to do this job. I'm supposed to set this down. This is when people do 180 degree things in their life that everyone around them is like, you shouldn't do that. Why would you sell this house and become a missionary? Why would you sacrifice this career to do this for God? Why would you? Why would you? Why would you? And it's because you have this key insight into how God is operating because you are submitted to his will. So he says to these lawyers, these experts in scripture, you have these keys and you've taken them away. You haven't even used them to enter into God's presence. And not only that, you've actually hindered other people from entering into God's presence. The key of knowledge is understanding the nature and will of God. And that is the goal of being in connection and community. Jesus, on the other hand, does exactly the opposite, and he calls people to follow him. He calls people into relationship with him. He calls people into his presence, and he not only wanted them to have connection with him, but he wanted the door to his father's house flung open for many. He's teaching them what the goal of Scripture is, which all of it is to point to relationship with God. Jesus used that key of knowledge to bring people to God and not abuse them. Therefore, Jesus is asking them And he's asking you, what have I taught you that you should be teaching others? What insight has he given you that you're just like, nope, I'm not listening? 
This is, this is the base definition, in my opinion, of spiritual disobedience, is when God's like, hey, you should go do that. And you're like, hey, leave me alone. Like, oftentimes, it just is, is that simple. It's not often like Elijah on the mountain, and you're like, wind and fire, and I won't do it, God, or Jonah in a storm. Like, I think we wait for these things. We're like, I don't know. God doesn't speak to me. I see no waves. And I'm like, yeah, but you got a really wise wife, and she says, you're a punk. Or you've got a husband who's been praying for you for years, and he says you're just not interested, or you have children, or, or this sermon, or you read a book, and there's these promptings in your life that are like, oh, I think I'm supposed to do something about that. I think I'm supposed to help myself, and ultimately, I think I'm supposed to help others. I think, though, I think, though, there's more people, especially in a service like this, which is our more church-going service, the nine o'clock, there are probably more people who like, yes, I understand that. I spend time with God. I have connection and relationship with God, but you just don't offer it up for anybody else. And I just want to encourage you back to serving in children's or youth group or recovery. We are called not to just get cozy with Jesus. We are called to like get out into it and do something with what we've learned with our time spent with him. So those are the six woes that he does. How do you think overall uh, Jesus' nice ability score is going? How do you think the dinner party's doing? Kind of a strange evening. This is how the passage ends. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They said, we lost that battle, but we haven't lost the war. And so they begin to try to trip him up and trip him up and trip him up, and they never could. And eventually, Jesus' uh, nice ability score ended in a let's murder him. That's a rough dinner party ending. He just didn't fit what they wanted. He wasn't the kind of savior they were expecting. And let's just face it, if we aren't careful, we in this very room will find ourselves believing in whatever kind of Jesus we want as well that we invite to the table. If we want a violent Jesus who's going to turn up at the end of days to lay waste to everyone who isn't on our team, we can find him here. If we want a lammy Jesus who's about nothing but pliability and softness, then we'll probably see that Jesus in the text. If we want a nice Jesus who would never offend or do anything disagreeable, we will see mainly that. I, for one, believe the Bible proclaims a Jesus who was many things, but not always nice. He was part Jewish mystic, part healer, part socio-political agitator, part wisdom teacher, and certainly part movement founder. And that means this Jesus wasn't nice, he was kind. For he would do what needed to be done to reach you where you were at. Kindness comes from the inside, this is the definition, and expresses itself through a clear love for others and a desire for their well-being. And this was distasteful to people around him because it didn't fit inside the power structure they had. This scenario is still a large part of the Christian legacy because sometimes the kindest thing you can do is call out what's not right and that still frustrates and angers people in power. Sometimes the most Jesus thing I can do is stand my ground and stand for truth even if it makes me unpopular. I mean, really think about what Jesus has asked us to do. Think about it. I'll put it on the screen. How can we claim to love others if we aren't willing to challenge the very situations and systems that oppress those others? How can we, as Christians, not sometimes just get out our whips and with love in our eyes say, no, 
or say yes. But how can we do any of that if we first aren't willing to sit in the presence of Jesus and be convicted by the things that don't feel very nice coming from him to us? If we really want to be with Jesus, we can't expect him to always be nice, but we can't expect him always to be kind. And that means we aren't called to be nice people, but kind people by lending a helping hand or sitting in a relationship with others we disagree with. That's what kind people do. We are called to be kind people, to be brave, to stand up for righteousness, and to not allow our own desire for approval or aversion to conflict keep us from speaking up and doing what needs to be done. Let us not be nice. Let us be kind. Let us be like Jesus. That is my hope for this church. That is my hope for who we are supposed to be. But it has to start with you and I being willing to sit at that same table and ask our questions and be passionate and maybe even argue, maybe even disagree with Jesus. I disagree with God all the time. He knows it. But he's always kind enough with me to pull these things out of my life that would bring destruction to my story. And now I have to be brave enough to go and be that kind of person to other people's lives. That's how the hands and feet of Jesus work. That's how the church marches forward. That's how this becomes a safe place for spiritually curious people, for conversation, for discipline, for Bible, for Jesus. That's what we're creating here. That's what you're a part of. But you gotta do more than just sit there. You have to give. We have a lot to do. You gotta give your time, we need your help. You've gotta serve, you've gotta help out. We need funds. We have a hole downstairs to finish one day. Who knows what God wants to do next? You gotta pray. You gotta be on your hands and knees and pray. You gotta sing. You gotta show up. You gotta protect. You gotta say, this is, this is where God's called me and I'm gonna defend and I'm gonna hold and I'm gonna be a part. And if we can do that, then, then I believe we will be able to sit at some really beautiful dinners with some really beautiful people who are drawn to the kindness, not just of us, but of our Lord. Amen? We stand, we'll close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for how kind you are to us, for how loving you are to us, for how much you care in spite of my own my own story, my own failures. Thank you for the healing you bring, for the love you bring, and for the way you bring it. Please just leave with us now, convict us now, stir us now, incite us now, heal us now, encourage us now. Bring us to where we're supposed to be and who we're supposed to be around. We love you, we are grateful for you. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. Amen, amen. thanks for coming guys. We'll see you next week.